All right, we're just going to jump into Genesis 24 and, and not read it because we've read it in the past, but we're going to, um, I'm going to preach on several verses throughout it. So we'll just jump into it, asking the Lord's blessing first. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee that you will open up this section of Scripture to us, that we might appreciate the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of thy Son, Jesus Christ, and the work of us, our saints, what things we ought to do. So I pray thee, Lord, that you would open up your word unto us, that thou would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said, I'm just going to jump right into this. Um, in particular, I'm going to kind of launch from verse 2. So actually, I will read the first two verses. And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. I appreciate that factual statement because indeed he's blessed us all in all things, but we often fail to appreciate that or remember that. And so we move forward um, in some trepidation as to whether or not he will continue to bless us, but of course he's going to continue to bless us. He's done it in the past, and he'll continue to do it into the future. To um, fail to believe that he will continue to do so is um, is denigrating to the grace of God and uh, makes us guilty of the same thing the Israelites were guilty of when they went into uh, when they were at Kadesh Barnea and spied out the land. They didn't think God could um, would give them the land, even though He'd literally destroyed national uh, or, or Egypt, um, destroying that country, parting the Red Sea, um, provided for them. They thought He would not continue to do so, even though He told them to go forward and uh, take that land. And so, basically, they called Him a liar. So, when we fail to believe that God will bless us moving forward, we're really looking back and saying, "No, I don't appreciate the things that You have done, and I don't see that You will continue to do so moving forward, even though He says that He will." At verse two, and Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, uh, "Put I pray thee thy hand under my thigh." So again, this morning I want to talk about that eldest servant. Um, the question is, who is the eldest servant, and what does the eldest servant represent? And we talked about last week how he represents uh, the Holy Ghost, but it, it's going to be a little broader than that. So if we, if we bounce back to Genesis chapter 15, I want to read the first four verses there so that we might appreciate the relationship between um, Eleazar, the steward of his house, and this eldest servant, who that uh, individual might be, and what we might look at when we look at this individual, what things we might glean and apply to our own lives. In chapter 15 of Genesis chapter 1, we read, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, wilt thou, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir." So the Lord reveals a couple of things here to us about who the heir is going to be, one that comes out of his own bowels, and who is this Eleazar of uh, Damascus? He is the steward of his house, which means he's running everything in his house. He's obviously a faithful servant into whose hand um, Abram has committed the care of all that he has, which is very similar to the eldest uh, servant of Genesis chapter 24. Now, uh, Eliezer means God of help, God of help. And our God is certainly a God of help because that's what he is. He's the consummate uh, servant in all that he does for us. Damascus 
means silent is the sackcloth weaver. Silent is the sackcloth weaver. So steward of my house, that comes from a Hebrew word, which is the word uh, ben, which we know is the word son. And so uh, when you look at the word and, the steward, you have ben, heir, or the son of acquisition. So there's an intimation here that in some of the places it would say that um, it translates a little bit differently, but you get the idea that Eleazar of Damascus ought to be the heir. But God says, no, one that comes out of your own bowels is going to be the heir. Now, what does sackcloth represent in the scripture? But it represents people that put sackcloth on them uh, are, uh, that's a sign of their repenting. That's a sign of their grief and remorse with what sins they have committed. So, Silent is the sackcloth weaver. We might think of that as like the Holy Ghost, which silently moves around and works in people's hearts to um, turn those hearts that they might repent. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 24 and 25, we read, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, being gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And so we get the idea here that the servant of the Lord is quiet, moves about, tries to teach uh, in such a way as that uh, by God's grace, the truth will be put on their heart and then that they will repent and move away from their sin or whatever error they are walking in and um, to the acknowledgement of the truth. Now, we know that Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says very clearly that it is the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. So God works in our hearts uh, to turn them that we might repent. Um, That sackcloth represents repentance um, is very easy to see if you look at Jonah chapter 3. There we know that Jonah has been called by God to go out to preach to the Ninevites, preach the gospel, which he does. And we pick it up in verse 5 of Jonah chapter 3. And it says, So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and ashes. Obviously, he's humbling himself before God. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through uh, Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. He's even having the beasts covered with sackcloth. And cry mightily unto God, Yea, let them turn, that's repent, every one from his evil way and from his violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. Again, that's repentance. And God repented from the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. So we appreciate here the relationship between sackcloth and repenting, that it's a sign of repentance. So Damascus meaning silent is the sackcloth weaver. We can appreciate that God is kind of woven in this uh, narrative here in Genesis chapter 15 in terms of who Eliezer the servant might represent. Well, he might represent the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, but the pre-incarnate Christ is not the heir. It's the incarnate Christ that is um, the heir. 
in uh, Genesis 15:4, the Lord says quite clearly, "He that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir." Now we know in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, the Lord tells us uh, that Christ became a partaker of flesh and blood. He became a partaker of flesh and blood. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, keep that thought in your head, he took on him not the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So Christ took on him the seed of Abraham. Chapter 15 here says the heir is one that comes out of his, that would come forth out of his, his bowels. Um, Galatians 3.16 tells us that the seed in view there is Christ himself. So in Hebrews 1-2, it tells us that Christ indeed, God's Son rather, it says, is indeed the appointed heir of all things. Christ Jesus is the appointed heir of all things. And he is, in verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1, the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. He's the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. So I share that verse with us frequently because when you're reading through the scripture, I mean, I'm always looking for Christ. And all the scripture points to Christ. So we should appreciate that when we read things about Christ and we find Christ in the scripture that we are learning about the Godhead, not just the Father, but also of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God too. So you'll, you'll find an overlap in what things the Holy Ghost does and what things the, uh, the Son of God does, particularly when we get to Genesis 24. We're going to see the, Holy, uh, the, um, the elder servant there do things that uh, we attribute directly to the Holy Spirit and other things that we can attribute um, to Christ as well. And so um, this Eliezer of Damascus is not the heir, but he is the steward of his house. He's ruling over all things. And so when we get to Genesis chapter 24, verse 2, we have this servant, the eldest servant that rules over all that he has. It's probably the same person. And the fact that he has no name in Genesis chapter 24 is probably helping us to appreciate that there he represents the Holy Ghost, although we're going to see some uh, things that Christ does there as well. So in 24, Genesis 24, we have the eldest servant seeking a bride for the son that is appointed heir of all things, the son that is appointed heir of all that Abraham has. We've read in the past where Abraham sent gave gifts unto the other children, but sent them all away. makes very clear that, um, that Isaac is his heir. Um, and so considering the eldest servant here as one that is sent forth uh, to find a bride for the son, we can appreciate that he represents, that this uh, chapter here represents God the Father sending God the Holy Spirit out into the world to seek a bride for his son Jesus, to call to the wedding all of those that are appointed unto salvation, to all of the, those that are appointed to be the bride. And that word appointed appears in verse 14 and verse 44 of Genesis chapter 24. Rebekah is the appointed bride. She represents the church elect and foreknown of God, which I had mentioned last week because her name appears in Genesis 22:23. Abraham knows that this woman exists, and the question is, Will the servant, uh, the eldest servant, will the eldest servant find her? How is he going to find her? Um, So what does the eldest servant do? In verse 10, we see that he is possessing all of his master's goods. And he goes to a well in verse 11. 
And in verse 13, it says that he goes there because he knows that the, quote, daughters of men gather there. The daughters of men gather there at the well. In verse 3, we know that he was instructed to not take a wife of the daughters of the Canaanites amongst whom he, Abraham, dwells, but rather, in verse 4, to take a bride from his kindred. So you don't take a bride from those that amongst whom I live, but you take them from my kindred. Now, in like manner, the Lord tells us that we are not to take a spouse, an individual with whom we will become one flesh, from amongst the unregenerated people amongst whom we dwell, but rather we are to take a spouse um, from amongst Christians, amongst people who have been regenerated. Now, you know that Lot made that mistake, and I would characterize uh, his life as being uh, vexed by, the, um, by his union with his wife. In 2 Peter 2, verse 8, it talks about how his soul was sorely vexed from day to day by virtue of this relationship he's got with his wife because he's living in Sodom, where his wife undoubtedly wants to live. So it's nothing but problematic when a person um, marries a non-believer. I've seen it in the church um, ever since I've been in the church, where you have one person yoked to the Lord and one person yoked to the world, one person in the kingdom of light, one person in the kingdom of darkness, one person who loves the things of the Lord, has a heart after God's own heart, and another person whose heart is more interested in the things of this world and whose heart is, uh, is full of idols. Um, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, actually, since I've just opened this idea about having a heart full of idols, when the eldest servant comes to the woman, he asks her if there is room in her father's house, and she answers, well, there is. Um, I think that's a fair question for God to ask anybody whether or not there is room in his house, meaning is there room in your heart for him? Um, what did the Lord do in the Gospels? But he went to his father's house, overturned the money changers' tables, and cast things out of his father's house, cleaned it up. And that, of course, is a picture of what he has to do with every one of his servants because the answer is no. We actually don't have room in our heart for the Lord. He has to make room. He comes into us and he cleans us out and he starts pushing everything out of our heart uh, to make room for himself. And I'll quote from a verse here that we would appreciate that we are um, the Father's house. So simply stated about this idea of marrying a non-believer, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says very clearly, it says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with uh, darkness? Um, I'm going to read a few more verses here because it ties into what I just said there. And what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? The answer is no, you have no part. There is no part. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Now, keep this verse in your head as we continue. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. To which I would add to that, you'll be his bride, you'll be his wife. So he's telling us here that we should not be unequally yoked with, uh, with the world, and that he dwells in us. We are the temple of the living God. And so... Um, 
by way of what we appreciate in Scripture, is we should marry our brother and sister in Christ, who are the kindred of God. And this is what Abraham did when he married his half-sister, Sarah. They had the same father, Terah. So you and your spouse should have the same heavenly father. In the context of uh, our marriage to Christ, we appreciate that he did not take a wife from the angelic host. Um, amongst whom he dwells. That's Hebrews 2.16. Hebrews 2.14, but as a partaker of flesh and blood, Philippians 2.7, he was made in the likeness of men, and so he took a wife from the daughters of men, which come out from Babylon, to draw water at the well. Um, so I hope you can tie all that together in your head. That's what the Lord has done for us. We, he is, Christ himself is the well from which we draw and we are drawn out, are uh, called out of uh, Babylon. And we read that in Revelation 19, where he says, Come out of her, ye my people, and be ye separate. And that's what the Lord was also saying in 2 Corinthians 6 there. Separate yourself from the world and unite yourself uh, if you are going to be married to a, um, a godly spouse, one whose father is the same as your heavenly father. We appreciate that the bride of Abraham, the bride of Isaac, and the bride of Jacob are all daughters, when you look at the genealogy of Terah, they all have the same, quote, father, as do their husbands, uh, who are types of Christ. And so God helps us to appreciate this, um, this doctrine in terms of us being united with Christ, our husband, as we have the same father. So, in like manner, we, who are the bride of Christ, have the same father as Christ has, for we have been begotten, or birthed, by the will of the Father, uh, with the word of truth. Um, the Lord helps us again to appreciate this when he, after his resurrection, he's in the garden. You'll, re, uh, you'll recall in the uh, Gospel of John, verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 17, um, Mary Magdalene is in the garden, and she doesn't know that she's speaking with Christ initially. She thinks she's speaking to the, God, um, to the gardener. And he says unto her that he will ascend, quote, unto my father, and to your Father, and to my God, and to your God. So he's telling us quite clearly that we have the same Father. And so having the same Father, why then we would be uh, united with one who is of our kindred, or he's, uh, we are of his kindred. So, so what we're reading here in verse 4 of Genesis 24 about go to my kindred and get a bride, that is exactly what God has done. He has sent his servant, the Holy Ghost, to his kindred, uh, to the elect of God, those whom are foreknown, to take a bride from amongst them um, to be the bride of his son, Christ. Um, so in the search of this bride, we see that Abraham's servant prayerfully seeks the prosperity or the success of God, in verse 20, in finding the bride. He prays with specificity, specifically that God will reveal to him his master's son appointed wife. And this is something that we should all do is, is pray very specifically about what things you would have God to do um, to prosper us in fulfilling God's will. We know that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask and so that we should not shy away from this kind of a prayer. We should not shy away from um, seeking uh, the Lord to give us a sign that uh, we are fulfilling his, um, his will. But I say this with a caveat in terms of what the eldest servant prays here, because he already 
is about his master's will. He's been told what his master's will is, and he's told to go out and execute his father's will. Um, and so um, we would certainly want to do this first. Being that he knows what his master wants him to do, that he is to locate the bride, he is simply asking God to reveal God's choice for him. Now, if I can give you a... Um, this is all, before I do that, this is all about fulfilling God's will. And so when we read in 1 John chapter 5, and all the prosperity preachers, they don't talk about this, but it's about executing God's will. In 1 John 5, 14 through 15, it says, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, anything according to God's will, he heareth us. And if we know that he heareth us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. So this is all conditional on knowing God's will and praying according to God's will. Um, And this is what he does. He knows that God has told him to go and seek a bride for his son. He's lived in this house of Abraham. Um, I don't know how long, but uh, Abraham describes him as one born in his own house. So I think he's been with Abraham a very long time, perhaps his whole life. And he's seen how the Lord works with his master, and he's seen how his master uh, is frequently at the altar of God, worshiping God, and he has seen how the Lord has worked in his master's life. And so uh, he would appreciate that Isaac is the promised son. He's no doubt seen the issue with Hagar and um, Ishmael, and so he knows that Isaac is indeed the promised son. And so he's to seek a bride for the promised son. So he would pray in accordance with God's will. I'm executing your will. What, what is the choice here of women? Now, by making this a ridiculous example, we would never go down to the Porsche dealership and pray that God would reveal to us what car he would have us to buy. Is it the black one or is it the red one? First, you need to affirm that God wants you to buy a Porsche. And I would assure you, he doesn't. <laughs> so that's not how he wants you to spend your money. But nevertheless, I hope you can appreciate what I'm sharing with you here is that first you would have to know Lord's will. God would have to make it crystal clear to you that you were to go down and buy a Porsche, and then it would be fair to ask him, certainly uh, proper to ask him, what color of car do you want me to buy or what model do you want me to buy? So the eldest servant here knows his father's will, his heavenly father's will, uh, Abraham's will, and he's going to execute that well. And so he prays that God will give him a sign. And so what does he do? He sets up conditions whereby the abiding characteristic of the bride is that of a servant. In verse 14 of Genesis 24, he says, And let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink, and she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou, that thou hast shown kindness unto my master. Here are the conditions, and if these conditions are met, I'll know that you have shown kindness to my master and that I have found the bride uh, for my master, that you have fulfilled your will for the promised uh, son. Um, Now, if there is one abiding characteristic of Christ that everybody can agree upon, it would be that he is a servant. He was a servant in the gospel, and he is a servant even to this day. 
When the Gospels open, what do we find the Lord doing? He's always serving people. He taught the people. He was preaching the Gospel. He was teaching them about the kingdom of heaven. He was teaching them about salvation. He was teaching them about the righteousness of God, about their need for repentance, their need to have faith. Um, he healed the people. Everywhere he went, he was healing people. We see him feeding the people. We see him turning water into wine, giving people a drink. And all of the things that he's doing, he's teaching them who he is. Ultimately, he's teaching them who he is, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and that he is the Savior. We see that he raised people from the dead. And we see that even while on the cross, while he was nailed to the cross, that he continued to minister and serve while he was on the cross. So from beginning to end, we see that Christ is the consummate servant. And so that's what conditions are being set forth with respect to the bride, is she would have the characteristics of Christ. While Christ was on the cross and suffering the wrath of God, he was doing so in our stead, so he was serving his bride by virtue of the, of the suffering that was taking place. He served his bride by his death, by his, resurrection, by his burial, and by his resurrection, and by his ascension, and he continues to serve his bride now, from the throne of grace, where scripture says he ever liveth to make intercession for her. And so I find this uh, servantness, his uh, characteristic as a servant, as the most observable characteristic of Christ. People can argue about who he was in terms of his divinity, but nobody argues about all of the service that he performed while he was there. That is a characteristic of Christ that was certainly um, observable. We read in um, Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to read several verses there. Philippians chapter 2, about this, uh, chronicling his servantness. Um, he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, so everything that follows speaks of his great condescension, condescension to be um, made in the form of man, made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant. And I've just shared with us how that was manifest and all of the things that he did, took on him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Well, obedient unto death, that means he was serving somebody in the process of that. And who was he obedient to? He was obedient unto his father. So not only does he serve um, the bride, his bride, but he also serves the church. Now, in verse 5, if you flip back, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We, too, are to um, be humble and to be servants. Verse 4, the next one up, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of other. Verse 3, with lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Is that not what Christ did? He put his bride ahead of himself. And we know that that's the mystery of the church as revealed in a marriage, but that a husband is called to die for his wife as Christ died to the church. That's the consummate service a person could do, would be down to lay down his life for another. And so that is what Christ did. And uh, we who are his uh, children, we who are his kindred um, should also manifest those characteristics of love and service and self-sacrifice, uh, particularly for the saints. Now, we see Rebecca here draws water for the camels. Now, if you look up how much water a camel can drink, you'll come up with different numbers. I've heard anywhere between 
30 and 52 gallons. He's got 10 camels, so you can do the math as well as I can, that she's pulling at least 300 gallons of water out of that well. I don't know how big her pitcher was, but um, it wouldn't be too heavy that she could lift it. That's a lot of trips to the well. That took a long time to satisfy those camels and whatever needs she had for her own family as well. But she took care of him first. She subordinated herself as a true servant, as a um, disciple of Christ might do. She put others ahead of herself. So uh, what does the eldest servant then do when he ascertains that, well, this is probably the one here. Um, The spirit uh, of truth, he does what the spirit of truth does in the heart of a believer. Uh, In John chapter 16, Jesus speaking about what the Holy Spirit will do, um, says, how be it when he the spirit of truth, that's the Holy Ghost, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. So this eldest servant, he doesn't come in there and talking about himself. You know, listen, I've just come 300 miles, and uh, these are my characteristics, and he doesn't say anything of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you of things to come. And so that's what he does. He begins to share with um, Rebecca things about Isaac and what things his master has called him to do. And he starts to speak of his master's glory and of Isaac's glory. Verse 14, he shall glorify me for how he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Um, That is exactly what he does. I'm going to continue to read uh, verse 15. All things that the father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. So is that not exactly what he does uh, when he uh, gets there and he ascertains that this is, in fact, the woman? We remember in verse 10 of uh, Genesis 24, we read that all of the goods of his master were in his hands. Uh, In verse 22, some of that he takes and he places on Rebekah, and this would represent the earnest deposit of the Holy Ghost. So it talks about this uh, earring, and so the question is, where did that earring go? What, uh, what exactly was that, and what would that represent for us to help us to appreciate the earnest deposit of the Holy Ghost? So in verse 22, it talks about an earring, and in verse 47, it is placed on her face. It's placed on her face. Now, the word face there is, on uh, several places in Scripture, uh, translated as the word nostril. So some of the Bibles will say that it was a nose ring, and I think that's what's intimated here in terms of this representation. The word nostril first appears in the Scriptures in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. There we read, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So the ring in particular on the nostrils would represent the earnest of the Holy Ghost where God breathed into us, gave us this Holy Ghost, and that was the, uh, we became partakers of the divine nature when we received the earnest of the um, Spirit. That's in, from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, hang on to that word, purchased possession, because we are the purchased possession of God. So we have received the earnest of the deposit. We have received the um, 
uh, Ernst of the Holy Spirit, just as we're seeing here with Rebecca. She's receiving this uh, nose ring. Um, Rebecca, representing, obviously, the church. She's the bride of Christ. She's going to receive more gifts. She receives more gifts after an agreement is made with Laban and Bethuel that Rebekah will be his master's son's wife. Now, I've been reading a lot of historical novels, which I enjoy, and one of the things that comes up frequently in these novels, because they ultimately um, have a romantic side to them, is the royalty will often uh, betroth their, the king's sister or the king's daughters to another king or another royal family to build a political alliance of some kind. The women in these books are typically unhappy about the betrothal that's been made on their behalf because they don't want to marry the particular individual because they don't have a relationship with them, they don't love them, and they would rather marry this fellow over here. They'd rather have that choice for themselves. And in one of the books, the author says, or the, as the conversation is taking place, he says, that is not a luxury we as the ruling class have. That's a luxury for the um, for the peasants, but we in the royalty do not have that luxury. We marry whom we are told to marry, whom the king tells us to marry, because it uh, develops these relationships. So here we see that in Genesis chapter 24, um, over in verse um, 51. Behold, Rebekah is before thee. Take her and go, and let her be thy master's son's wife, as the Lord hath spoken." The conversation between the elder servant is with uh, Laban and Bethuel, the males, and it's not with Rebekah. And they agree that she is going to go with them. So the agreement is made between the men and not the bride. She has no say in the matter. And I hope you can appreciate that with respect to you. There was an agreement between the Godhead whom you were going to marry that you had no say in the matter. It was simply said... You, you are the bride of, of Christ. Now, um, in verse 53, we see that the agreement is made. And in verse 53, it says, And the servant brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and gave them to Rebekah. Now the agreement's been made, so he's going to adorn the bride here. And he gave also to her brother and to her mother precious things. So we see that a dowry is now paid once the agreement, uh, once they've agreed upon that this will take place that uh, she will go with the eldest servant and be the wife of the master's son. Now, for the church, the true bride of God's son, there was a price paid, there was a dowry paid that you would wed Christ. And God the Father paid with the life of his son for you. You are the purchased possession. That's John 3.16, And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And by the world, I'm going to define that as the church. God didn't die for everybody. He didn't give his son for everybody. He gave them for specific people. And the person he gave his son for was to purchase the bride for Christ. It's a dowry that is being paid here. 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells us very clearly, ye are bought with a price. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, of Rebecca, it is later asked, and this makes these historical novels fun, is because the girl eventually falls in love with the person she has to marry. And so we see that here, that after she has received the earnest deposit, after she has received the jewels of silver and of gold and of the uh, raiment, after the dowry is paid, in verse 58, she's asked if she will go with this man. 
Now, it doesn't really matter what her answer is because she's going to go. She's already been bought and paid for, and, the, and she's it's already been agreed that that will happen. Um, but what is her answer? She says yes. She is willing to go. And we appreciate that that represents the love we have in our heart that is common to those who have received the Spirit of Christ. He has taken out our stony heart, and he has given us a heart of flesh. In Isaiah 61.10, which we've read many times because we see it played out time and time and time again in Scripture, we read, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I, that's you, that's me, that's the bride. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. And we see this with um, Rebecca because she was given new raiment. He, had, he clothed her with, with new raiment. We also read about that before the service in Revelation 19, where it speaks about the fine white linen is the righteousness of the saint. That is linen that has been given to us. That is raiment that has been given to us. Raiment that, if I can use this language, was washed in the blood of Christ. So we will greatly rejoice in the Lord. He hath covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh with ornaments and as a bride adorneth with her jewels. And so she is decked and adorned with jewels. She's given raiment. And yes, she's rejoicing. She is willing to go, just indeed as we are willing to go. <laughs> Our frustration is we don't know when we're going. We just have to wait until the Lord um, comes and calls us home. Um, so we, we are rejoicing in the Lord as with Rebecca. We are willing brides, and we desire very much to be united with Christ at the consummation of all things. Now, looking back by way of application in terms of how we should conduct ourselves, we look at this elder servant, eldest servant and see what things he did. He served his master well. He knew what his master's will was, and he executed his master's will. He never strayed from it. He prayed that God would prosper his journey, which God does for him. Uh, he prayed that God would give him success, not for his benefit, but for his master's benefit, um, knowing that God was ever faithful to his master. Um, he asked for and received God's sign that it was accomplished, and then he thanked God for it. Remember when Jesus is at the Last Supper, he thanks God for the people that the Lord has given him, the people that he's going to go and uh, purchase on the price. Every step of the way, we see this eldest servant glorifying God. Um, when he comes to speak to Rebecca's family. Um, he will not eat until such time as he has um, shared with them what the purpose of his journey is. And the Lord says that, my meat and drink is to, to do the will of my Father, which hath sent me to finish his work. And so this eldest servant here, in that case, we see him representing Christ, very single-minded, very much on track, that he's, he will not eat until such time as he accomplishes his master's will, and he's told why he's there. Um, when he spake to Rebecca's family, what did he do? He bore witness of his master's glory and the glory of the master's son. And he shared with them what things God had done to make the journey successful, to prosper the journey. And that's what every witness does. When you witness about Christ, what are you witnessing? You're telling people what God has done for you. You're sharing what things you know to be true of God. So you, you are always speaking of Christ and his glory and what things that he has done for you. Uh, and so this is what he does and, uh, and with respect to accomplishing his master's will. As he shares all of these things and setting before us, of course, an example of uh, what things we should do 
as we are here as ambassadors for Christ, um, fulfilling his will and uh, working towards his benefit and his glory. So with that, I'll say amen. Amen.